Amen. It was important for me to tell you this morning that when we come into this place and we begin to sing and we begin to praise the Lord, that it's it's a heart condition that God desires. It's a people who long to to fellowship and commune with their God. And I pray that you uh, think deeply about the things that we sing. And we work very hard to ensure that the things that we are singing, and many of you, I pray, have taken note of this, are are all designed to, to surround the text by which we'll study every Sunday. Even the song the choir sings, we don't sing songs because we like them. We don't sing songs because we just randomly choose them. But we spend a lot of time every week thinking deeply about the text that will be preached and songs that will lead us into worship and prepare our minds to think. And so I pray that during the time of worship, with your heart, you're thinking about what the Lord is saying and what exactly it is that we're singing. And if you'll think back at the end of Sunday mornings at the things that we sung, you'll see so many times I'm over here during worship and I'm just overwhelmed. And the reason I'm overwhelmed is because I'm the only one in the room who knows what's about to be said. Well, for the most part. And it overwhelms me. Because I hear God's people singing. And I know what He longs to say to you and to me. So keep that in mind as we worship Him. As we sing and recognize that we not just we don't just sing that he's holy but he is holy and right now in heaven that chorus is being chanted across the spans of the universe and one day we'll be a part of that and the reason the only reason why we'll be a part of that is because Jesus Paid it all. Every single cent was paid by Him. Let's worship. Amen. If you'll grab your copy of Scripture, open up to Luke chapter 13. The 13th chapter, the Gospel of Luke. You can find that on page 1202. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, feel free to grab that pew Bible in front of you. Turn to page 1202. You'll be able to follow along with us. We are studying through the Gospel of Luke. And as we make our way through, we have seen the Lord revealing Himself in magnificent ways to us. We've also seen God saying things to us that we don't necessarily uh, like to hear or things that we like to think about. But God wants us to know who He is. He wants us to know His character and His nature. And He, again this morning, will be speaking to us in a very blunt way, in a very forceful way, stating the facts, only the facts, nothing but the facts, directly to us. And the reason He does that is because He loves us. And the most loving thing He can do is tell us the truth that we so desperately need to hear and yield to. So let's go to before the Lord in prayer and pray that He will give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive 
the truth this morning. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we want to acknowledge, God, that this is your perfect, inerrant word that is intended for your people. God, we receive it as the amazing, precious gift that it is. And Lord, we want to recognize this morning that, Lord, you speak to us harshly at times and very directly. And Lord, we are prone to shun your words of truth. Our hearts are very deceitful and wicked. And Lord God, I pray that you will help us this morning, God, through the enablement of your Holy Spirit, God, that you'll give us the ability, Lord, to receive to internalize, to process, to think and pray on what you have to say to us in this time. Lord, what a grand opportunity this moment is. May we not squander it. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 13, beginning in verse 22. Jesus, as you recall, is just, uh, he's heading to Jerusalem and he has set his mind towards Jerusalem and as he is going... Uh, he's traveling along. He, there's a multitude, a great multitude that's following behind him. They're very interested in what he has to say. They're very curious about the things that he's doing. And so they are just uh, swarming all around him as he's traveling across the countryside. And as we pick up in verse 22, we see that as he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say unto you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, But we ate and drank in your presence and You taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know you or where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit in the kingdom of God. And indeed... There are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Now, I want to confess to you this morning that before we even begin to take apart what Jesus has said, we're just going to have to face the truth. And the truth is, is that we're a family. We're a faith family. We love each other. I look around this room and I see a multitude of faces that I deeply, dearly love. People that I have walked through life with. I mean, over the past, my whole adult life has been spent among you here in this place. But you know, as much as I want to feel warm and fuzzy this morning, as much as I want to just look around and just think, look at all these wonderful family members that mean so much to me. The reality is that on every row in this church, there's bound to be someone who is destined and doomed for an eternity in hell. That's the reality. Jesus makes it very clear. You see, the problem with a text like this and a culture like this is that we think 
that we're the chosen people. We think that we're the special ones, that we, we come from the land that's founded on the principles of God and that, that somehow we get some special anointing, some special privilege. And then when we think about multitudes who are going to go to hell, we think about some tribe somewhere in some jungle somewhere or some people who, who are always, uh, you know, engaged in some evil activity or building bombs to ruin the world or some other area, but certainly not here. But I want you to understand something. The very people that Jesus is speaking to in this text think that they're the chosen people too. They think that they're the ones, the, the ones that God chose, that set apart. They're His people. Certainly they're going. And Jesus is saying in the context of people who think they have a claim to His kingdom, only a few are going in. And as much as I would love to be able to lay my head down at night and to drift off to sleep in the blissful thought of one day all of us together will be in heaven. I can't do that because I read the Bible. It's just not true. It's not true. This room... Has lost people all scattered about it. There are people that you sit by every Sunday, that you love, that you fellowship with, that you do life together with, and they're not saved. They're just pretending to be a part. And in their heart, they know that. And I know that's not what you want to hear because it's not what I want to hear, but it's what Jesus says. Let's look together at this question that seems to come out of nowhere. And as he goes through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, someone says out of the crowd, we don't know if it was a man or woman, we have no idea. Suddenly this question comes from the crowd, Lord are there only a few who are going to be saved? Now, out of the thousands of people that are pressing in around Jesus and understanding where we've come from, I mean, Jesus has made it painfully clear in the previous verses that He's come not to bring peace, but to bring division. Well, that went over wonderfully. Then He comes back and He says, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. When they're all thinking it's going to be this mighty power that's going to overthrow Rome and bring their freedom. And Jesus says, no, it's really more like a mustard seed or a little bit of yeast as it permeates through the dough of a loaf of bread. Last week, he healed a, a crippled woman in the synagogue as he was teaching. Well, that went over like a real champ. So the religious leaders become indignant because of what he's done. He's violated their, their rules and laws according to men. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy that they really don't prioritize the people that they claim to, to love and serve. And then in verse 17, remember, you can just look up. It says, and when he said these things, it, all of his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitude, notice that, all the multitude rejoiced. So now there's this paradox there's these people who belong to this religious system. They're on one hand part of this thing and they're, they're entitled to, 
to heaven to somehow be uh, automatically ushered into God's kingdom. But on the other hand, they recognize the, the, the fallacy of, of man-centered religion. And they, they, they're rejoicing in the sense that they see Jesus knows something that they don't know. But here's what I find to be true as I read the Bible, that people, for the most part, they love what Jesus does. They, they love the things that, that He does. They, they love to, to be around, but they reject what He says. People have this tendency where they feel comfort to be around Him and around the things of Him, but they refuse to surrender to Him. There's always this proximity Christianity that goes on in the New Testament. And listen, if we don't live in that, I don't know what is. If the Bible Belt is not the most ridiculous proximity Christianity place in the world, I don't know what is. And the reason, if, you, if you're a little shocked by what I'm saying this morning, then I can tell you why. The reason is because you haven't been out there sharing the gospel. Because as soon as you do, just go down to the mall today and start passing out tracts and watch what happens. Oh, people aren't going to curse you. People aren't going to rebuke you. They're going to smile at you. They're going to receive the tract from you. They're going to tell you that they're saved and they're going to go right about their business living life the way they want to live it. Because somewhere along the line, somebody said something, did something, they were involved in some experience somewhere, and it has no bearing on the way they live their life, but they're saved. Why do you think I love third world countries? Why do you think I love talking about Jesus to people who have never heard the gospel before? Because I don't have to tolerate all that. See, the question that's being asked of Jesus essentially is, Lord, based on everything you've been saying, based on all the teaching that you've been teaching us, it seems like only a few people are going to get to heaven. Now, we know that really can't be the case. So will you explain to us what's really going on? You see, that's the question. The question is a question of quantity. The question is centered around how many people. But the answer does not address quantity as much as it addresses urgency. Isn't this exactly what we continually see from Jesus? Look at the shocking answer to the question. Verse 24, And He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Now, Jesus does, doesn't just come right out and say, Well, yeah, you're correct, only a few are. He doesn't say that. Instead, He responds with this urge to strive... And then follows that up with this guarantee of disappointment for many. An urge to strive and then a guarantee of disappointment for many. Look at the urge to strive. He says, strive, strive to enter the narrow gate. Agonizomai. That's the Greek word used for strive. Does it sound familiar? It's where we get the word to agonize. It's a word used to describe combat, hand-to-hand combat between two mortal enemies. This isn't strive like, you know, strive to lose a few pounds this week. This is strive like striving in war, striving in conflict, striving in, in combat. Now, when I say that, does it sound a little to you like maybe Jesus is saying, well, that sounds like working your way to heaven. 
That sounds like works to me. I thought there was nothing I could do to earn heaven. Well, there isn't. Understand this. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. But grace is utterly opposed to earning. And they're two totally different things. Case in point, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Clearly we're saved by grace, through faith. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't boast about it. But you're not saved by good works. You're saved for good works. Because you have to keep reading. The next verse says, For we are His workmanship, His poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now here's what I want you to see. Do you see the freedom in Ephesians chapter 2? You don't see this, this, this grudging uh, uh, approach to good works. It's a freedom of good works. It's you're, you're free to do good work for the first time in your life. Listen, some of you this morning, this is where you are. You do good things and you have denied the truth and convinced yourself that the good things that you do earn you favor in heaven. But here's what the difference is between the things that you do and the things that saved people do. Saved people do good works and they're free in them. They are blessed by them. They love them. You know, it's not a chore for them. But you see, when you're trying to earn your way, you're just gritting your teeth and getting through it. You find yourself complaining because not enough people are helping you. You find yourself grumbling all the time because people don't see the things the way you see them. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see, this is precisely who Jesus is talking to. People who think they're going to heaven because of what they've done. And the way I know this is because of what he says. Look at the guarantee of disappointment for many. He says, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know you. Where are you from? It's interesting to me that the first thing that happens when the door is shut is suddenly there's this multitude of people who then get up and begin knocking. Notice they're not knocking until the door is shut. But when the door is shut, they're knocking. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that they understand what's going on. They refer to him as Lord, Lord, just like in Matthew 7, verse 21. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, sorry, I know you claim to have done all these things in my name, but depart from me, for I never knew you. You see, they're not, these aren't people in some remote jungle somewhere that are saying, hey, what's going on here? These are people who have understanding. They start knocking, wait a minute, Lord, Lord, they know who shut the door. They know what's happening and they're declaring, wait, wait, you shut it too soon. You forgot me. I belong on the inside. See, Jesus here is not teaching us that there will be these earnest seekers who genuinely desire to enter the kingdom, but for some reason they're excluded. That's not at all what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is saying, 
Repent now. While the door is open. That one day the door will shut. You see, because a failure to repent now, what is a failure to repent now in light of the truth that you harness, that you know? It's pridefulness. It's self-righteousness. It's self-sufficiency. You know, the enemy is not working nearly as hard to convince you that heaven doesn't exist. No, because... Somehow we all sort of think in our own way, you know, heaven, yeah, there's got to be a, a better, another place. I mean, we don't just end to go nowhere. And, and, and the devil's not working overtime to convince you that hell doesn't necessarily exist either, although that's uh, working at a marginal rate right now. No, because somehow we all think, well, you know, evil does have to be punished, but I mean, I'm certainly not as evil as most people are. And so as long as you're better than Hitler and Charles Manson, you're okay. No, you know what the devil's saying? He's saying, just wait. Just wait. Live your life. Enjoy yourself. Do things your way. You've got plenty of time. It's going to be okay. You see, repentance, this, this issue of striving, repentance does not come easy. For those of us in the room who have uh, repented, a lot. It's not easy. It's hard. It, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, anguishing process. It's one of those things that I often think to myself, it, that and the Trinity are probably the two hardest things for me to explain to somebody. The Trinity because, let's face it, it's just hard to get your head around. Repentance, because if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know the Lord through repentance... How do I explain that? I love it. It's glorious and it's wonderful. And yet it's agonizing and rips my heart out and stomps all over it. Matthew 7. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who will go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, again, instead of using this issue of striving here, Jesus says that narrow is the gate, difficult is the way. That's what I want you to hear. Difficult is the way. That's what Jesus says. Now, when you and I start talking about our salvation, when 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 you begin to tell people about how you're a Christian or try to convince them that you are and things come out of your mouth like, well, you know, when I was a teenager, I filled out a card or there was this one time when I prayed a prayer. Or I go to church at Michael Memorial or some other church. Or I raise my hand at a revival service. Or really, I've been going to church all my life. I was on the cradle roll. My parents are Christians. For goodness sake, my ringtone is a praise song. I've got to be in. Can I just caution you first of all? Are any of those things difficult? Does that sound difficult to you? No, one time I went down front and filled out a card and I'm good now and I can just go on about my business. That sounds really easy. Difficult is the way. Strive to enter the narrow gate. Why is the broad road to destruction easy? 
It seems to me oftentimes that maybe both roads ought to be hard. But they're not. Why is it so easy to go on the broad road to destruction? The reason why the broad road to destruction is so easy because that's the road you were born on. You see, that road just comes natural to us. You don't have to change anything to go on that road. You just start going, you're born, you grow up, you live, you die. That's it. It's like English. Very few of us in the room except for two up here on the front row. Praise God for the front row. English just comes natural to you and me. We never had to strive to learn it. You know why? Because we were just born into it. You ever tried to learn a second language? It's hard. See, the broad road is just natural. You just go. There's no change. There's no repentance. There's no transformation. There's no turn. You just go with the flow. So when I'm out in the mall passing out tracks, what do I see? Do I see striving? Do I see the hard way? Or do I see a whole bunch of people who are just going with the flow and they're staking everything on, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did which really concerns me because where did we get the idea that we're saved because of something we did? Whenever somebody asks you how you know you're a Christian, try not to start the sentence with I Start it with He. God. It's not I. It's Him. He did it. So we have all these people running around claiming to be Christians because of something they did a long time ago, yet it bears no evidence today. There's no striving. There's no difficulty in their lives today for Christ. They just go on living normal. Like everyone else, there's no transformation, there's no brokenness over sin, and they're just completely convinced, or at least outwardly, that everything's going to be fine. Jesus says, well, I don't think that's going to work for you. There's going to be a whole lot of people that are knocking on the door screaming, hey, you forgot about me. Difficult is the way that leads to life. Proverbs 2 in the Old Testament. I love Proverbs 2. The Bible says this, that my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom, that you imply, apply your heart to understanding, if you cry out for discernment, if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, if you search for her as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It's striving. The problem that I see is not that a bunch of people need to try harder and work harder. They need to cry out. They need to incline their ear. So grateful for so many people in this room for the very first time in their life. They're reading through the Bible. And every day you're reading 12, 15 minutes a day. And I mean, not a week goes by, I get emails and comments and phone calls about how it's transforming your life and how wonderful it is. Some people have been in church for decades and for the first time you're doing that. And listen, I realize that it hasn't been an easy road. You see, that's the whole deal. You've got to strive. You know what the narrow gate is? It's Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's the narrow gate. And you're like plowing. But here's the deal. You say, well, where's the grace of God? Well, He gave you a leap day. Now see, the rest of you are like, what's that mean? Because you're not reading your Bible. 
So let me, let me just press you a minute to ask a couple questions of yourself. Not to anyone else, to you. Is your priority in life Jesus Christ? Is your priority in life Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Question number two. Is it your desire to forsake everything in your life that is displeasing to the Lord? You see, the problem with a message like this and me pushing like this is that I know all the loopholes. I know all the mental gymnastics that go on in the room right now. I know all the trick about, you know, well, yeah, I mean, I sin, but everyone sins. When, I mean, no one's perfect, but yeah. And that's, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, does it rip your heart out when you sin? Do you hate your sin? Are you grieved when you sin? None of us in here are perfect. All of us in here are sinners. But the difference is some of us wail and mourn over our deficiency. And we hurt. And we hate it. And some of you in here just skate on through. And the people that live with you are concerned. They see things in your life that cause them to question. And they're like you. They, they love you and they care about you and they don't want to think about it. And so they try to just pull back and they try to just think, well, you know, they're just, you know, it's just a hard season or it's just this or it's just that. Well, I've been a Christian for 18 years. And on that 18 year journey, there's been some ups and there's been some downs. But there's one thing that's consistently been there every single moment of those 18 years. And that is that when I sin, when I fail my Lord, I hate it. It hurts. I feel terrible. Maybe not in the instant that I'm doing it, but there's remorse. There's, it just doesn't work because we're the Spirit of God is, see, light and darkness, there's no fellowship with them. But when you just sin, and it's just not a big deal, it's just okay. I mean, our, our understanding of Christianity is so jacked up, if you will. I mean, the simplest text that we all know, in John chapter 3, just prior to, John 3, 16, Jesus is in a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks the question, how is it that a man can be saved? Jesus responds, you must be born again. Not a surprise to anyone here. But why is it that we don't ever think past that? In other words, yes, you must be born again. But what does that mean? If you're born again, then after that new birth, you live a new life. You're not reborn and then live the old life. You see, that doesn't work. If there's a new birth, there's a new life. But we just think, well, no, there's a new birth. And then, you know, things pretty much are the same. So what's the first thing that, that people respond with when they're faced with the reality of what Jesus has to say? Look at verse 26. Then you will begin to say, 
But we, we, we ate and drank in your presence and you, you taught in our streets. And Jesus will respond and say, well, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. They immediately start to claim, hey, hey, wait, we're an insider. We're on the team. What are you doing? They first go to their proximity. Their first line of defense is, I'm here. I'm with you. I belong here. I should be here somewhere. You know, the difference between being a fan and being on the team. Now, I know that, again, here's another area in our culture where this is very blurry because there's a lot of fruitcakes out there that actually think they play for the saints, but they don't. Do you know what the difference is between a fan and a member of the team? It's not Sunday. It's all during the week. You see, the fan just goes back to life as normal till the next Sunday. But the team is out striving. The team is out working. The team is on the field perfecting their craft. I tell you, it looks like the church today has become infiltrated by fans. I mean, we got the jersey, we got the hat, we know the players, we got all the equipment, we got season tickets right there where you're sitting. Nobody better not sit in your season ticket. (laughs) But come Monday morning, all this will be a distant memory. You'll be right back to the grind. You see, there are people in this place this morning, and I love you. I care about you. I cry for you. And you've come here, maybe you've joined this church, and you walked up front, and you pointed to some past experience, and you assured me or whoever else was up here that you're a Christian, and you've been uh, scripturally baptized, and you want to... Uh, plant your life here or move your letter from wherever it is that it is and you're going to bring it over here. And you've sat here and you've listened to me preach week after week after week and the invitation comes and it makes you a little uncomfortable, a little fidgety. You know, it's always a good time to slip out. All of a sudden you have a coughing fit or, you know, you immediately, your bladder's about to explode or something like that. And so as soon as it's, you know, decision time, out the door you go. And the people closest to you, if we're just honest this morning, your husband or your wife or maybe even your born-again teenager, they're they're looking at you and they're kind of thinking, hmm. But you just keep rocking along and just just assuring everybody that it's going to be okay. And you see, by doing that, essentially what you've done is you've just backed yourself into a corner. Because every time you have the opportunity to repent and get right with God, you just, and you tell, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And you just get in the, back yourself up in a corner. And you back yourself up in a corner. And, and then it's another hurdle that you got to cross over between where you are and where I am. You see, it's, I can't save you. But if you can't get up from where you are and walk down here and tell someone you need to be saved, then God won't either. I mean, if you're ashamed of Him before man, 
He's ashamed of you before the Father. I mean, let's just be realistic about it. Where is their secretive Christianity? What's the very first thing we're commanded to do as believers? Baptism. What is baptism? It's your public proclamation that you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. That's why you don't get baptized in private. I don't come to your house and dunk you in the tub or the pool. We do it as a congregation because it's designed by the Lord to be a time for you to say, Hey, here I am, world. I belong to Jesus Christ. But you see, we, we're, you know, that we're, we're private. We get, it's, it's our little thing that we don't want anyone to know about. Jesus says, you know what? Your claims that you, you ate and drank in my presence, that, that you, you taught in our streets. It's like, Jesus, you were our pastor. We were there. We heard it. We were right there. I mean, salvation was right in front of our face. But the door shut. And once the door is shut, it's over. You can knock all you want to, but to no avail. Because the time to repent has passed. And that's the harsh reality that we see beginning in verse 28. Jesus, as the compassionate Lord and Savior that He is, He says, there is going to be. I mean, just think, He didn't have to say this. He could have just said, nah, you're going to be all right. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Or He could have just left this out. But He's saying, no, I love you. I want you to know. In other words, He is assuring that there's not anyone banging on the locked door who has any excuse, who didn't know. He says, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not going to be pretty. You're going to see the prophets and they're going to be in the kingdom, but you're going to be thrust out. You're not going to be able to be where they are. And people, people that you thought were the people that didn't belong, that didn't have the rights from the east and the west and the north and the south, the people that you, you didn't like their skin color, you didn't like their language, you weren't into the way they worship God, you didn't think they had any sense, the people, they live in little huts and they, they, they don't, they ride around on bicycles and they don't know how to read and you don't know about them, but they're coming! They're coming from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you know what? They're coming and they're going to sit at the table and dine with the king. And there's going to be people next to you and people next to me, brothers and sisters from around the world, and we're going to be eating and dining at the banquet feast of the Lord. But everybody here won't be there. Because if you and I are foolish enough to think that every person in this room is saved, we're denying the reality of this Scripture right here. It's a narrow gate. You have to strive to enter it. It's a difficult way. But it's a glorious, glorious reality. Why does Jesus... Why is He so confrontational? Why is He so in your face? It's because he, he knows the reality of hell. Which is the same reason why we're so quick not to share the gospel. Because we just don't believe hell's that bad. We just don't believe the gate's that narrow. 
We just convince ourselves, you know, I think, I think people are going to get in on technicality. I think it's going to be okay. I think good people who do good things, love people, generous people, serving people, caring people, I think they're going to get in. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's one way. No man will enter but by him. That's the only way. That's what the Bible says. And it's through repentance and self-denial. There's change. There's a new birth followed by a new life. Things aren't the way they used to be. See, the best part about being in a church like this is all the new lives around us. See, the most encouraging thing, the, 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 the way you know for sure that this text is true is that right now in this room, there are people who are radically different than the way they were just a few months ago. Their whole life is turned upside down. All their priorities are different. Their parenting is different. Their marriage is different. It's all different. And why? Because they're saved. They're saved. Do they have problems? Yes. Do they fail? Yes. Do they struggle? Absolutely they struggle. Sometimes more than lost people. But for the glory of God, they persevere to the end. Not because of anything they've done, but because of what He's done. In Luke 5, Jesus clued us in to what was coming. The scribes and the Pharisees were complaining against Him, and they were saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those of you who are well have no need of a physician. Hmm, that's not why I've come. I've come for the ones who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous But I came to call sinners to repentance. Do you know you're a sinner this morning? I hope you do. I hope you haven't come in here thinking that you're a good person, thinking that somehow the good things that you do are going to be enough because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous and I want Him to call all of us today. I want Him to call you right now. To himself. And the only way he's going to do that is when you recognize I'm in the center camp, Lord. I'm not okay. I need a physician. I know what's going on in my heart. Hebrews 3 warns us to beware, lest in any of us there'll be an evil heart of unbelief in departing from a living God. I want you to hear that you see you, you, you come right? there's so many times the story goes oh there was this moment and there was this time and there was this place and this preacher and this thing and but after that I just departed I just sort of went back to the way it was that's not the reality of salvation. That's not a new birth followed by a new life. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is having the Passover meal with His disciples, He says to His disciples, He says, one of you in here has betrayed Me. And it's very interesting because here are the men who have spent more time with Jesus than anyone. And the Bible says that every single one of them began to question himself, is it me, Lord? 
Is it me? All of them. But what's even more interesting about that is that not one of them said, is it Judas? You see, you can blend in so well. You can play the game so well that the people that you live with think you're going to be okay. And Judas sitting next to Jesus looked at Jesus and said, is it me? And Jesus leaned back and whispered in his ear, it's you. And you know, in that moment, wouldn't you expect Judas to just fall on his knees and repent? The gig is up. The, 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 the sham has been revealed. The game is over. Jesus has exposed you. And Judas doesn't move an inch. He just kept right on pretending. All the way to his death. Dear God, don't leave this place today. Pretending. You can fool me. You can fool your husband, your wife, your kids. But you can't fool him. Let's repent. Let's get right before God. While the door is open. Let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for the way you love us and how truthful you are with us. And Lord God, right now, there are decisions that need to be made in this room. And so, Father, we pray that, God, we know that no one in this room can just come in their own strength and demand salvation. No one in this room has earned it or deserves it. But, Lord God, we're all here unworthy sinners saved only by the grace of God. And so, Lord, if, if right now you'd be so good, Lord, as to just tug on those hearts that are beating, Lord God, those nervous fidgeting and hands are sweating, Lord God, will you just give them the courage to come to you, to receive you as Savior. Father, thank you. Thank you for a church that we have the blessing and the privilege to see people born into new life. God, today, we pray no one, no one, no one would leave this place apart from you. In Jesus' name.